Welcome to the show. I am Johannes, and uh, I am very happy today to um, be speaking with Olivia Gamblin, who is the CEO and founder of Ethical Intelligence. Um, she, which which is a which has essentially two parts to it. It is uh, both a company that um, that has ethics as a service, and um, uh, and and Olivia will will tell us more about what that is. And then it also has an expert network attached to it, which I probably want to join. So then here, uh, I, I also want to say that I met Olivia through a common friend of ours, Nick Larson. And as we were speaking, it was apparent that she should be uh, on the show. Before we get into the conversation, I want to clarify a few terms that will occur in this conversation frequently. I do this via the Stanford Encyclopedia of philosophy, from which I will read a short paragraph. Virtual ethics is currently one of three major approaches in normative ethics. It may initially be identified as the one that emphasizes the virtues or moral character in contrast to the approach that emphasizes duties or rules, deontology, or that emphasizes the consequences of actions, consequentialism. Suppose it is obvious that someone in need should be helped, a utilitarian a type of consequentialist, to be sure, will point to the fact that the consequences of doing so will maximize well-being, a deontologist to the fact that in doing so, the agent will be acting in accordance with a moral rule, such as do others as he would be done by, and a virtue ethicist to the fact that helping the person would be charitable or benevolent. This is not to say that only virtual ethicists attend to virtues any more than it is to say that only consequentialists attend to consequences or only deontologists to rules. Each of the above mentioned approaches can make room for virtues, consequences, and rules. We will see this in the course of the conversation when Olivia Gamblin will often refer to outcomes, which is a consequentialist idea. And that confuses me at some point. You will see that as well. So I often refer to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy as a quick reference when I am not sure about a term or when I want to know a particular approach. Of course, that is not to say that this is a substitute for books or for the Western canon or for any of the canons in, in philosophy. There's also something you could do in between those two, a short reference versus reading all the books, and that is to read Bertrand Russell's uh, A History of Western Philosophy. This is a highly recommended book. It is recommended by Noam Chomsky and by many other uh, intellectuals. This book has also made its own contribution to philosophy um, they, they, in outlining the philosophy of, of Bertrand Russell, who contrasts his own philosophy with those uh, philosophies of the historical 
philosophers of the Western canon. And so then I want to also say here that I really uh, find this uh, quote quite uh, thought-provoking that you have on your website, which says that uh, good technology does not take advantage of our human nature. It's tech that helps us embrace the nature of being human. And so for that, I, I want to start the show right away with asking you, what do you mean by human nature? Because this is a, a hotly the, the debated you know, issue, whether it, it exists at all. And of course, from Noam Chomsky, we know that there is a certain limit to what the range of human experiences can, can possibly be in, in language and uh, probably also in ethical thinking. And therefore, there must be something to it. But what it is, it seems to be quite contentious where, where it lies. So please give us a, a little bit of an introduction of what you mean by, by human nature and, and how does it apply um, in, in technology. Absolutely, and thank you for having me today, Johannes. It's great to be here. Um, so to unpack really what I mean by human nature, this, I guess the best approach for this is starting with artificial intelligence, actually, which sounds a little bit funny of a place to start, but. Um, artificial intelligence is based off of really kind of our understanding of a, to me, what is a limited scope of human intelligence, how we process analytically. Um, but that is not just our only way of processing as humans. We also have emotional inputs. We have emotional reasoning. Um, we have spatial logic. We have spatial reasoning. We have different types of intelligence. And one of the types of intelligence that we have as people is actually moral ethical intelligence. And this is our ability to um, sense and feel, well, <laughs> both emotions, but also sense uh, morals. So the difference between right and wrong, good and bad. Um, our intelligence in being able to understand these, this dichotomy that exists in life that's what is essentially our ethical intelligence, not actually to quote my company name. Uh, that's a little bit different. But to me, to, to bring it back around to your question, uh, what, it, what I mean by human nature is the combination, this, the group of all of our different types of intelligences. That means that it is incorporating our ability to logically reason, our analytical processing. It, it incorporates our emotional understanding. It incorporates those existential questions we have as humans of what the heck are we doing here. Um, it covers the whole gauntlet. We as humans are messy. But all of them, so all yes. of what you just said, for example, these, uh, the, especially what is right or wrong, or what is the good life, those, those questions are not, they don't have a natural answer to them, do they? No, I mean, yes and no. What is a good life? A good life, and <laughs> what I'll define a good life is, uh, is a life full of purpose um, and fulfillment. What that means for each individual person is different. That's what I find very beautiful about it is there is a universal truth in the sense of if I find my life fulfilling, then it is a good life for me. But what I find fulfilling in life is going to be very different from what you find fulfilling in life. We're going to have very different good lives, but we do all have the potential to have a good life. Um, so it's it's allows for the the adoption and flexibility from person to person, but we all are still in, in this crazy thing called life and in, in it together, trying to figure out what is, what is my purpose and how do I fulfill so, that? So that's fascinating to me because so, so here we have virtue ethics to me means, or, or it strikes me to mean that there is something that's virtuous that, that we have in common that is kind of you know, beyond the individual. But then you now, with your, with your answer to that last question, 
you strike me then now to be a, a pretty radical individualist at the same time. <laughs> is, that, is that something you can reconcile? What is virtuous seems to have in it the, the question even of virtue, it seems to me. I mean, as a, a, a sort of a, be defined in a, in a social way, socially constructed, in other words. There are definitely social impacts. There's um, social influence. That's that's for sure. That's not something to be ignored. Um, but it depends on where the individual is and what kind of societies that impacts what our individual needs and fulfillment are. Um, so you have that type of feedback coming in. Um, but the interesting thing for me is the virtues across different cultures, across different societies, we do see patterns in what kind of virtues are praised and what kind of virtues, well, leave you feeling good at the end of the day. I'm going back to the emotion in that sense. Um, for the exam for example, the virtue of being honest. There's right time and right place to be honest. Um, there's right degrees of being honest, but generally across the board, across different societies, you see honesty as this is this is something that we uphold. Um, so you, you, there well. is that <laughs> I, I want to push back on this a little bit because I think that there are some cultures that I've come across that seem to think that if you are honest, you're a sucker, which <laughs> is really actually an, an another type of ethic that says you ought to just get what you could think of it as an ethic. It seems kind of unethical to me immediately, but, but there are communities that hold this belief that you should not be a, a sucker. And therefore, you sometimes have to lie or be dishonest, and that's part of their ethical system in a way. Is, is, is that supported? Is, is that supportable? Is that reasonable enough to be called an ethic or a virtue? I wouldn't call that necessarily a virtue, but it is an understanding. It is an, an ethical lens. It's it's um, let's say a framework that people that people work through. A lot of times, philosophers will put forward the idea of the little white lies. Where do those lie? Um, if you are more of a deontological thinker, then you're gonna say, well, that's a lie, done. That's bad, That's you're being dishonest. Um, in terms of utilitarian, okay, you, depending on how it comes out at the end of the day, you could tell yeah. that lie, so on and so forth. Um, oh virtue, yeah, it's very dangerous. The yeah, utilitarianism exactly. is basically, if it, well, well, if the lie serves the greater good for the greater number of people, whatever I can. I can I can say that that's always the exactly yeah. versus with with virtue ethics, which is something that I think is really fascinating is it all exists on a scale. So you've got um, basically think like the absolute candor, kind of like the Dutch, where they'll just say what's ever on their mind. That's extreme honesty in one side. Um, but then you have the other end where it's where people just tell lies. They hide the truth. It's shady. Um, virtue ethics has everyone on that scale. You're, you're in between these two what are essentially vices if they're taken to the extreme. Um, what you're trying to do as an individual with, again, the feedback, the influence on the society around you is figure out where you need to be on that scale. So what is the right amount of honesty for me in this scenario? So it doesn't write out the possibility of, okay, I could tell a, a white lie in this moment because of X, Y, and Z influences outside, not because it justifies uh, means to the end or ends to the mean or anything in between, but it's looking at me right now, I can say, um, I can tell a little white lie to my friend that, no, we didn't plan a surprise birthday party. We didn't plan a birthday party for you. When we plan a surprise birthday party, that's an okay, that's, that's a good white lie in that moment because that's the right amount of honesty that I'm telling in that moment. 
Um, oh. The interest, it's <laughs> which I know we can go on to, to without all that kid snowball. It's such a slippery quickly. slope. Is Santa Claus real? Should you tell your children <laughs> whether or not those sorts of stories? Yeah. And even if you know that, for example, that some religion is mostly made up, should we should we actually talk about that, or or is that an infringement on someone's religious? How to say? Um, is it rude? Um, yeah. It's a it's a really interesting slippery slope, though, and it seems to me that the answer to that is very there's a great variation of what the right answer is to this question. And when we build software that is made to scale, mm -hmm. the danger there is that you have to place yourself, you're forced in a way, if you want to treat everyone the same way, which is also questionable of whether you should do that because there are different demands. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, so maybe services should be much more tailored to local conditions. This is something I've talked to um, a guest recently um, on, on the show about. I mean, he, to he told me about that. So um, it's really kind of an interesting dilemma, if you will, right? Because when we build software, we, we, we endow it with some sort of ethical, it, it, it will be embodied with some ethical uh, system that mm -hmm. somebody has to cite on what is the virtue that we want this software to portray and what is that, where does it come from? It is, it can be, become very, um, it, it become, can become paternalistic is what I think is a, is a danger. Don't, what do you, what do you think of that? Yeah, there's also some fear as well. Um, it's a smaller line of conversation, but there is a, a line of conversation in responsible ethical AI, uh, this space about the fear that because Western cultures are so uh, engaged in this topic and essentially all the frameworks and regulations are coming out of the Western cultures that we are embedding Western ethics and Western values um, over and above yeah. any other region, which, you know, there's, there is some truth to that. Um, the interesting part to this is we're definitely, th that scale factor puts us into a whole new <laughs> philosophical thought experiment, if you want to call it. Um, but we were never necessarily meant to have this level of scale. So we are facing these new questions mm. of what do we do when we're at this scale? Because in the past, you know, our, our, our impact, our level of impact was confined to our, our social, our society, our, our, the people around us. Um, which in that case, it was fine to have the same value system because we all had the same value system we're in the same society. Well, now, if, we're if we're not segregated, right, <laughs> then it becomes yes, actually it can become a very local uh, uh, point of contention. If you if you have a very non segregated society where many different cultures come into contact in the same yeah. place, like London, for example, right, where yeah. you don't have this idea of homogeneous, uh, homogeneous idea of what is virtuous, it can be radically different across you know, across the street from where I'm sitting. <laughs> yeah, which is, uh, which is a great example. It's like London at scale all of a sudden, and we're trying to design technology yeah. so that it fits all of these different, these different uh, understandings of ethics and society and values. And that does become tricky. Um, <clears throat> this is where I like to fall back on the idea of being of universal truths and universal values that we are trying to pursue you see these starting to arise a little bit in regulation, like this universal understanding of the need for transparency in our systems so that we understand what's happening in the systems um, or our universal need for fair systems. How that looks in each society is different, which is where part of the problems of that translation are happening. 
Um, but we do have those universal values that we're all that we're all chasing. Um, when it comes to the change in the societies, I this is a question that still hasn't been solved. But I'm very fascinated in this idea of agency in terms of societies and cultures, where there is an ability to adapt the technology to the actual um, culture instead of the culture having to adapt to the technology. A great example here actually is through a company called Blah Blah Car. Um, they have their their car sharing, not car sharing, um, ride sharing, um, kind of like I know they're gonna hate that I say this. I have, I have a friend, that, good friend that works at Blah Blah Car, but it's like long distance Uber. He hates when I describe it that way, um, but it's app based, and in the majority of European countries, you pay in the app. Just like you would on, on for like an Uber, you pay blah blah car in the app. Except for in Germany, in Germany they had to switch over to a subscription model for access, but that was because people in Germany liked to pay by cash. They were paying for these rides by in cash, and so I use this as an, I, I think this is a fantastic example because blah blah car went in and instead of saying no, you're going to pay in the app because this is what we've decided, and this is how you have to adapt to us. They went okay, you're in Germany. We get that this is how culturally car sharing works or ride sharing mm -hmm. works. So cool. We'll adapt our technology to fit how you already function and you work. So blah, blah, car, car is, is, is what it's called? Car. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah car. car. I think it seems like a simple approach that it's, it seems like it shouldn't be that far fetched in a way. But yeah, that's that's often not the case. So when you when you have the apps, they just sort of one fits all. Um, and there is local feedback is discounted to zero, as long as the, the revenue comes in, right? It's it's often very revenue based. And yeah. um, but the, the interesting thing there, though, is that is a missed opportunity if they're not adopting. Mm -hmm. For example, back to blah, blah, car, if they hadn't adopted to the German system, their use in Germany would be cut by at least 50% because people didn't, they're like, it's fine. I'll just find a different way to do a long distance yeah. car ride and I'll pay in cash. Cause that's, I prefer to do that than through the app. Right. Um, so not adapting to those local ecosystems within reason, you know, never, <laughs> as you say, when you're building, um, software, you don't listen to all the feature suggestions. Otherwise you would have this monster. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you adapt within reason to the local culture, even just, within continentally country-wise minded, then that does actually open up a new potential in terms of revenue. It makes your 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 business, your your product more absolutely. attractive mm -hmm. because it's not so foreign. Yeah, absolutely. I think in general, if you're solving people's problems and you're reasonably sure not to hurt them in other ways, you will do, you will do better than uh, you will make more exactly. profit in the long run. This is what we're seeing also with these companies who, who are very, uh, I don't want to say have a lot of hubris in, yeah. you know, just pursuing their agenda. And at some point, what you see is it's not paying off, actually. There's this point where, where it's not paying off. So then virtue ethics is, can, can be adapted to local, can, can be adapted to local um, conditions and it's not necessarily a universal virtue. But then how far can it go? How far can it go? There are some virtues in the world that I would say I find very problematic. 
I don't know, if you're not a virgin, then I, I don't know, you, you know where it can go. There are these virtues that I find very disagreeable. And why do I find them disagreeable? Why do they don't, why don't they find it disagreeable? And, and what can we do about these sorts of things where, um, where, where we have somewhat of a, I don't want to use the term clash of civilizations because I think that's a over, overhyped idea as well because I don't think we're clashing as much as, as that idea would have us clashing. But some, in some areas, we do have some real contentions, right? Real differences yeah. in, in what we would consider virtue, right? How it is to be right. And, and at some point, I would say that a responsible, ethical, responsible uh, technology provider will draw the line in the sand and say, okay, well, your virtues are not working for me and and this is very it's very tricky and a very difficult can of worms to open i realize this but i think we have to open all cans of worms yeah absolutely and let's look for example at women's rights we've got the protests happening mm -hmm. in iran right now and based off of the regime's um let's say ethical framework that they're working through um, women do not have the same rights as men. Now, <laughs> let me introduce something called moral maturity. Um, this is this concept of <clears throat> over time, we as humans, we learn about our, our values. We learn about what we should value, uh, what our virtues should be. Um, it is a process that takes place over centuries, over, over decades, um, uh, decade, decades and centuries. But essentially, it's I have tried this virtue or I've tried these actions. I don't like the outcome. Therefore, I need to change my actions to align better with, with um, say something that I, that I want or feel. And so yeah. I'm mature in my understanding of my morality. But the problem is now, that some people do seem to like those outcomes. And then they, they push back and they want to go back to some, some outcomes that we have generally thoroughly rejected. You see this in America, you see that in, I guess, Iran is, is, is still a strong example of this. They, they had a much different, more market-oriented, market much more, how to say, a freer society. And then they went and, and they went back to these other virtues. And they are now, and, and, and I would say a large po population in Iran feels strongly behind those other virtues. And I think same similar thing is actually going on in the United States as well. So we've got maturity in terms of individual, but we also have maturity in terms of society in general and how we build on it. The case with Iran, so what we've done as a as international on a global scale is we've come to an agreement actually on human rights, what we call human rights. Those are values that we've agreed on a global scale need to be respected. Um, and the case with Iran is they're actually against uh, how they are treating women is against the human rights of the women, which is the problem there where we can actually say, I can say as an ethicist, no, that is not right. It doesn't matter what your ethical lens is, that is not right. So, so human rights is also a very specific ethic to, to let our uh, listeners in on this. Human rights is not actually, it's another approach. You could say utilitarian, as opposed to utilitarianism or or uh, as opposed to, and I'm not sure, how does that fit in? How do human rights fit in to virtue ethics as a system? Yeah, so how, and so it, let me let me explain it in this way. Um, if I were working with someone 
uh, as an ethicist working working with them on their on their system and they, we were talking about human rights i'm using human rights as the baseline of like you need to fulfill these human rights otherwise we cannot enter in, into any discussion beyond this we cannot look at any other virtues um, beyond this essentially what it means and how we also incorporate regulation when it comes to work and ethics is we're establishing baselines of this is the least that you have to do um, if you are doing this you're one step above illegal great doesn't mean that you're actually achieving the ethical standard mm -hmm. that you want to but you do need to reach this base level um, and human rights are a great base level because they are recognized on a global scale and these have been developed over time and tested over time of yes this makes sense um, that women and, and men have the same rights uh, and that are equal in society. We've, t we've tested that over the time, we've agreed, we're trying to get there, but we've agreed that this is, this is good. Okay, and then let me ask you another scale. question that's related <laughs> to this then. I think, I think it is related to this, and I, I don't know if everyone, and it's a bit controversial, because there's a lot of people working in, in business in, in Dubai and um, United Arab Emirates. I even had a guest on, uh, recently on, on, on this show, um, who who works in the United um, Arab Emirates? Is it even ethical to do business with other groups of people who have a virtue system that is so opposed to the, the current, the one that we have, and the, you say is globally agreed to? But I don't think that is actually true. In, in, the, in the case of uh, the whole um, Arabian Peninsula, United Arab, Arab Emirates, uh, Qatar. Mm -hmm. Um, Dubai, Saudi Arabia, right? They seem to have, to me, different virtues. And they don't agree yeah. to the universal ones that we're talking about. So it isn't really quite universal in that sense, to be honest, right? So if we have to, we have to say that there are some people who are not within that, who, who don't agree to even human rights. But they are a big force in technology development at the moment. They have a lot of money that they're getting through, um, well, traditionally, But uh, they are, they're shifting now. Uh, Qatar has a lot of uh, uh, natural gas, for example. And, but they're doing also other things, and they're doing a lot of things in the technology space. So how do you feel about that when, when, when we're confronted with that? Yeah, I have to say it feels um, similar to the question as an ethicist when people ask me, like, would you ever work with Facebook or Google? Because that's in, in responsible. Yeah, those are kind of like the evil companies as well. Where we're like, oh, we can't we don't align with them. We can't work with them. And my answer is no, it's it's not wrong to do business. It's not wrong to do to do business, um, say, with with um, it, with different cultures that you're not necessarily in agreement with their virtues or companies. But you have to know as an individual going in, you have to know where your lines are that you are not going to cross. And that's where it becomes tricky. So if you are doing, if you are doing business um, and something happens where you realize, okay, well, you, you violated this human right or you, you've crossed my line, you have to have enough bravery actually and enough backbone in that moment to say no and push back, um, which again is very difficult. So it's not bad to engage in business. Um, everyone's got a different different place that they're coming in from, but it you do need, you're going to need a strong backbone uh, going into that. Otherwise, you will compromise your own ethics, your own self, um, if you do not know where your lines are and you do not have the courage to to say no in those instances. So you're saying that the, the, the bottom line is that the, the minimum line should be human rights. 
and, and, and so they should be respected by whatever project, I suppose, that you're engaged with. So you have yeah. to be at least conscientious of that as, as, as a minimum. Um, so that's, that's uh, and, yeah. and then beyond that, whether you're virtuous or not, if you, if you engage in, in, in partnerships with people who have radically different systems of virtue, and, and then also if you're serving customers, uh, clients that have radically different systems of virtue, I, I, it, it must become a bit tricky. Yes. Oh yeah, I'm not. I'm not denying it. It's very. It is very, very tricky. That's that's what I mean. Of it's not wrong. To, it's not wrong to engage. It's going to be very, very difficult though if you are actually going in and saying I'm gonna. I'm going to stick to my to my values. It becomes very, very tricky. Um, so that leads it to the question of is it worth? Is the money worth you compromising your values? Uh, that's really what the trade-off is that you're making. Absolutely. And so then uh, I also want to ask this question because I feel pretty strongly that when we build AI, for example, or other technologies, the one thing that we should ask, instead of asking is it good or is, it, uh, is that how does it shift power in the world? How does it mm -hmm. basically give some people more power and how does it perhaps even take away power from others? And how does that work? How does it distribute uh, power in some way? And what do you think and how do you think that is related to virtue? Power shifting in terms of virtue. Oof. Um, I, so there is a very strong conversation around AI and data itself and how that there is a lot of power concentrated in who has the data, who has the insights, who has the strongest technology. Um, we're seeing tech companies have greater power and influence than governments, which is fascinating. Um, the interesting point in terms of virtues and let me phrase it in this way is whoever is implementing these mass systems um, that people are, are following or beholden to, it's the virtue system or the ethical system of whoever has developed this system that is actually being put in place. So in that case, the power rests in still in who has who has the data, who's creating the AI, because they have power not only of influence, but they have power of this is what we will value on a global couldn't, couldn't scale, not say, even okay. this is what I uh, am. Yeah, so, so couldn't you say that that in itself is not virtuous? That it just isn't a virtue that a few yeah. individuals or a few or big um, how to call them, gubernauts, jubernauts, have all this power and that it isn't distributed and that in fact we should, and this is what, what, what um, uh, several of my guests have now proposed, we should decentralize and engage in a more sharing economy or collaborative economy, uh, whatever that means. And, and there is a, a show d directly about this particular uh, topic with Somil Gupta and so it, it may be you could think of this in terms of virtue this power dynamic or this power distribution as a non-virtuous according to some systems of virtue it must be wrong but I don't know how that relates to virtue uh, virtue ethics yeah I think um, I think now we're actually diverting a little bit more into political philosophy um, but I do agree in the sense that I am a proponent of the decentralized movement. Um, I do think that having these centralized points of power and control is not healthy. Um, 
And it's funny because it's not like it's, it's power is not a virtue. Power is not something like, oh, this is something really good that we need to uphold. No, it's, it's, it's something on a, on a different scale. It's not a virtue. Um, but the virtues of the individual empower what's getting communicated. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of questions around, are the values of the people in power right now actually the values that we want? And, and well, you know, I'm, okay. I'm also a little bit skeptical that yeah, that but is it's true. only a matter of value because to me it's almost, it's very difficult for Jeff Bezos to imagine, for example, what it is like to grow up with his technology in Kenya, for example, having contact with Amazon in Kenya growing up, something like that, right? It would be impossible for him to understand, even if his virtue, if he was a virtuous yeah. person. So it seems also to be just not just that it's their virtues that are being embodied in this technology, but also that it's their understanding that is embodied in this technology. Yeah, I would actually say that in some of these cases, um, what is lacking in terms of virtue is the virtue of humility, which is a virtue. And in that case, you and it's humility in the in the sense of recognizing um, I do not have that understanding, <laughs> like as, as I'm Jeff Bezos, I do not have the understanding of a kid growing up in Kenya with access to Amazon. I don't have that understanding. Therefore, I cannot make, under I cannot make informed decisions about that person's experience and how I can affect them. It's having that humility to understand that I need to listen first and understand how other people have, how other people experience um, both their life and, and my technology and know that I do not have all of the right answers. I have the right answers for me and my, my own personal life and my own, my that, own understanding. That seems to be a huge tall order. So they have to listen to, because the, the other object yeah. being that it should be scalable. That seems to be a virtue in, in San Francisco, uh, where you are. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, that's true. Um, so if, if you want something to be scalable, then that means that you want something to serve millions and billions of people and maybe make improve their lives. So there is also a utilitarian aspect yeah. to this. So to say, well, what can we can we afford not to do it? Because it might really bring a lot of improvement to people's lives if we do this sort of scalable, big approach and then sort of run over the virtues in a way of others because we cannot actually possibly listen to, I don't know, three million 20 million, 40 million yeah, people, I yeah. don't know, but they, we want to serve 40 million people. So how do we bridge this gap? Yeah. Well, the first question I would ask is, is it an improvement according to you or an improvement according to the group you're trying to serve? That's a huge question. If I, as Olivia, think that um, I can bring improvement to a young boy living in China and I can improve his life according to my standards, Am I actually improving his life according to him, his life? It's his life. Um, so that's always the question that I like to, to flip on its head of, well, whose improvement are we going by? Um, but no, the, I don't think this runs counter, uh, counterproductive to scale. I think what I'm, try what I'm trying to get across here is with scale, with that level of scale, we increase uh, our responsibility for actually listening to not three million people, but groups and societies and, and cultures within that three million um, to understand how we are actually impacting where you see, okay, this is taking off in a small rural town in China. Okay, what is actually the experience of, of that, that small little town in China as we're taking up? Um, so 
yes, it is <laughs> with greater scale comes greater responsibility. If we're going to play words on, on the Spider-Man quote. Um, but when you reach that level of scale, it is, you don't get to come in and say, this is how it's done. You actually, you do need to listen to, to the people you are serving and adjust for how it is being, how they are being served. Um, I think that that's the point again about power is you don't, <laughs> and that lack of humility, you don't know what's best for other people. You can help and provide. This is kind of scale. You should really not expect it to be very hierarchical, the structure, and you should actually expect yeah. the structure to be much more distributed across the closer to the stakeholders. I think that that is sort of my view on yeah. that. Um, but but I, which again creates better it, better it, services and and products. But yeah, it requires a lot of thinking, and you know, uh, I guess that's and there's a lot yeah. of different angles to 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 go about it that I'm learning about as I'm going along. <laughs> so this is very good. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you one more question yeah. here uh, about measurability and metrics. So we live in this world where mm. we expect metrics. We're uh, data scientists and we're, I mean, to some degree, we're all data scientists now. And uh, we, 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 need yeah. to, we need to know what yeah. we're measuring. Right? So how do we measure virtue? It seems to me that it's in conflict with the idea of measurement, vir virtue that is. <laughs> yeah, there, the, it, it is difficult. You can't measure you can't go in saying I am the most humble. <laughs> um, oh my god! Kind of yeah. counterproductive. It sounds like you're not seeing more wrong. <laughs> exactly, um, but there there are other ways to to measure. Uh, there is a great line of thinking that I really enjoy, um, which is the triple bottom line, where you're looking at people, planet, profit, all in the same all in the same score. So um, if people are suffering at the price of profit and planet is suffering at the price of people and so on, um, then it's not a successful system, but instead putting those three on the same playing field, that itself, there's virtue sewn into the seams there of we are, we are honoring life and we are honoring environment that's being sewn into just how we're, how we're measuring our productivity, how we're measuring our, our metrics. So there are ways to embed it into how we currently so, so what, from what metrics, let me so. ask you this: from from what from what perspective, or how are you? What where do you derive the inspiration for your for your virtue? For your, from what tradition? <laughs> yeah, from what tradition? Or how do you? Because I, I think when you say people, planet, profit, it seems to me a little bit. Some of that yeah. sounds like it could come from from, for example, indigenous communities. So I don't know how how do you derive? Where do you derive your your um, your virtues from what what is the, the say let's say the the most inf the, the the books that influenced you the most or the the authors or the the experiences that have influenced you the most in, in, in your pursuit of virtue yeah okay um and i i yes i i really like this question and i want to stress here though that i've i have influences on my personal understanding my personal virtues um, but when it comes to my work as an ethicist, one of the things I do is detach from my own value system. Uh, and I take a critical look at the individual's value system, the society they're in, the, the regulations that they're against. Um, so as an ethicist, you actually have to practice detaching from your own ethical framework to be able to understand where the other person's coming from. Um, but my, my own personal ones, um, <laughs> I think actually one of the biggest, one of the biggest influences um, growing up is I love C.S. Lewis. 
um, I discovered C.S. Lewis through the Chronicles of Narnia, which is a great, great, um, kind of like the Harry Potter fandom, um, its own little series. But C.S. Lewis was a, also a philosopher. Um, and he has some great works like um, pieces on grief, pieces on uh, human understanding, and just these fantastic approaches to understanding life and emotions and morals. And I think um, he's got one book called The Great Divide, which is essentially about what is the, the Catholic Church's understanding of purgatory. Mm -hmm. uh, but I absolutely love this book because it's about these souls that they're on their way to the afterlife, but they're stuck at this kind of in-between mm -hmm. space. Um, and it's the story of one soul going around and talking to the other souls of like, hey, why, why are you here? What's going on? Um, and each of the souls that he's talking to, they're all hung up on something in life. They're all hung up on, one is a mother that, that lost a child, um, that lost a child. And she's so focused on, on the loss of this life that she wasn't able to actually continue living mm -hmm. her own life. And even in the afterlife, she's still stuck on this point. Um, there's ones where another, he's talking to another soul and this, this soul, um, had was gluttonous so constantly eating constantly eating and was so focused on that that they they didn't fo they weren't able to fully experience life in other ways because they were always focused on more food more food um but i absolutely love that book because it was looking at in life you know what are you so attached to that you're missing the bigger picture that, that you are sacrificing everything in your life to to have this one thought or this one one need or this one um one aspect there's no balance to it. So I think a, not only that book, but a lot of writing by, by, um, C.S. Lewis. I is it particularly Christian I get, then, right? It's, or, or is it Catholic? Even yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, I was born into an Irish Italian family, so I had no choice, but to, to be Catholic growing up. Um, but yeah, I, a lot of my early understandings, um, and virtues came out of the Catholic church. Um, I read a lot of Thomas Aquinas and Seven Deadly Sins. I think it's fascinating. Um, so I, I know for, for my personal values, a lot of it's heavily influenced uh, by, by Christianity, by the Catholic Church. Um, I say to take everything with a grain of salt because on the flip side, all of my philosophical understandings that uh, through, my, through my various degrees, I've, you know, I've studied everything from Nietzsche to Kant to um, Mills to Hume, all of the different perspectives. And I think what that taught me between my personal value system growing up and then the value systems that I've studied is that there is no one right answer and that we need to balance, um, that you need to draw on all of these different aspects and to understand as well. It takes a level of self-awareness, but to understand, you know, this is where I'm heavily influenced. This is where my, my values are heavily influenced and, and to understand if maybe I'm talking to you, Johannes, and we're disagreeing on something and, and I realize, oh, well, it's because I've got this influence on my value Absolutely. system and you've got an opposite one. Doesn't well, matter. Well, yeah, but like, you're building way, I suppose, right? You're in this dialectic yeah. between what is coincidental uh, about your experience, what were mm -hmm. you exposed to. In a way, you could say that your parents being Catholic is, is, is somewhat coincidental. Well, not coincidental, yeah. it's cultural. It's a sort of a given, given it's, um, yeah. and then there is this conscious part where you where you where you feel drawn to certain ways of thinking is how my experience is 
then, then there are also somewhat traumatic experiences potentially that play into this yeah. as well and how what what moves you and what pushes your buttons basically in the in in the space of ethics that's my yeah. experience in any case i think a good way of, of or how i try and describe it is um we as humans we're still learning about morality we're still learning about ethics it's not a hard science yet because we're still figuring things out around it uh the joke of philosophy is it's called philosophy until there are rules and laws and then it's a science um so morality is not a science yet because we're still figuring it out and it's kind of this it's got this layer of mystery which i find to be beautiful um but it's got this layer of mystery and so we as humans we're just trying to interpret it so we've got different value something, systems i think there seems to be something fundamentally different to science though in the sense that there there seem to be some irreconcilable or not ir- irreducible irreducible differences in axioms that make this thing yeah. it, it makes this thing sort of non solvable in a unique way even in the long run so there is mm-hmm. not i think even a con- conceivable way to bring things into alignment of all sorts into alignment because there will be some some things that will always be not really quite fitting well so whereas in science you you can you can always you can optimize a function and you're optimizing one metric which is to of of, of explanation in science usually yeah. but but here you're you're trying to optimize things simultaneously that that don't really fit i think this is this is mm. for example in the case of you know, of bias so we we say we don't want yeah. an algorithm to be biased in one way or the other right so so then we have we have two ways of being unbiased and and, and i brought this up in in, in, a, in another um in another episode as well so and you 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 have the bias of for example in in recidivism i think is an interesting case yeah so so you have two biases you you and in addition to that you have the rule that justice should be blind to a lot of categories mm. so so yeah. and and exactly what that means is very difficult because there's a lot of correlate you know as as, as shamika tasnes has in, stated on on that episode what what is what's the problem here is um you have a lot of things that correlate with the protected mm-hmm. classes if you are so even to be blind is not so easy but then if you're yeah. blind how can you know that you're not biased you can't know right yeah exactly so so that is uh, very paradoxical right there is this paradoxical <laughs> nature to to ethics which seems to me even in the long run irreconcilable unsolvable in that way no matter how long we live potentially learn. well it seems to me like you cannot yeah. solve this problem right it's just, it's pretty clear that you cannot both be blind and unbiased no. right? or, or and be sure to be unbiased so these these are not things that that work well together <laughs> but maybe down the line in the future we find a way where maybe that aspect of being blind is not actually what we need to be valuing maybe that need that it actually needs to be changed itself um maybe we do actually need to be aware so that we do provide justice across the board uh in a way that seems or appears that we are blind to to different factors. You see that's um, the thing. I mean if you're not really blind, <laughs> right, you might be you you might it's just it's it's a very tricky problem. It's it's not something something yeah, I I might regard as of tonight but uh, or <laughs> about or today um depending on where you are. Um but it is just something to think of and I feel like there is something you know, also even 
even in science, let's say, we now know, thanks to Gödel, mm -hmm. that it is impossible that we will ever have um, an answer to every question. So every question yeah. that has that that's true, that has true as an answer, for example, cannot be necessarily proven to be true. And this this is going to be perpetual. So the and, and, and in ethics, I think you're you're even dealing with a much more dicey problem. I think that that than you are dealing with with when it comes to science questions. <clears throat> Yeah, who knows? I mean, we may have a branch of ethics come out that's more scientifically based. Who knows? In thousands of years, we're still we're still developing, um, and I find yeah, I I find that ethics and morality is this great frontier of of thought that we are still we've been exploring for thousands of years, and we still are slowly but surely making our way through it. Um, and to me, that's something really beautiful. That yes, in my lifetime, we're not going to have all the answers but I can work and I can provide thought and experience to maybe get us a little bit closer. So how do you feel um, then about, this is a good, good little probe for another question. How do you feel about the enormous yes. speed at which we're developing technology? And we're, we're, you see, I, it seems to me that there's a, a mismatch in the way that we're developing in terms of thinking about ethics and the way that we're developing technologies and just trying things out. Yeah. Well, I think in this case, so maybe it's a bit controversial, but I do think in this case, what we're doing right now is we're trying to apply our current value system, our current understanding of ethics to our technology. Yes, that is in some cases actually just flat out missing in our technology, which that needs to be fixed. Um, but overall, looking at, at the technology, we have this great opportunity of as the speed and the caliber at which our technology is being created. What can our technology actually tell us of, about us as humans? And our back to, to the original question, our human nature. Mm. For example, we were saying, oh, we're fine, we're fair, we're fair as a society, and then we have these systems being built and we're looking at it going, what is all this bias in here? That bias is not in the, in the system, it's in our society. What that should be doing is not us, that's not a technical problem. That's not, we need to fix the, the system, it's we actually need to fix society. We're not actually as unbiased, we're not as fair as we think we are. Um, so that is the opportunity there of, sure, let's expand and let's grow the technology, but what is, what is the technology telling us about us as a society that we can grow as a society? And again, feedback into the technology. Um, but it does real things, there right? Is, it affects elections that are suddenly, yeah. suddenly it starts oh, yeah. affecting elections, suddenly it starts affecting things in the world. It's radically undoing or redoing our life. As yeah. we're starting to think about what is the good life, we're at a very fast rate transforming it. That could be yeah. scary well, in a particular perspective. I mean, if, you say, if you're thinking about oh, these yeah. things together, it could appear as a very scary thing. Yeah, yeah, I think it, it can be very scary. Um, but we need to be able, as a, both on a societal and an individual level, have the backbone of, hey, we tried that. That did not work. We do not like that outcome. Let's change it. Let's not keep doing it. Um, I think that's what's the scary part is we're lacking that backbone right so now. outcomes but Both outcomes a... that's like you sound now like a like a utilitarian a little bit because because <laughs> virtues are should, maybe a little in that case yeah but... because virtues should be independent of outcomes even yeah well you've got think of it as this this in this direction of you've got your first layer i'm making decisions on a system that i had never done before i'm experimenting cool but at least i'm experimenting within my frame 
of reference within my virtues. I am not making, I'm not making any decisions that compromise my baseline. Now I'm looking at the outcomes and those outcomes, oof, I didn't actually really like those outcomes. Let me adjust what my baseline is. And that feeds back in. Um, and, and we, we grow from there. The problem is, is we're missing the baseline to start with, and then we're not even taking in the feedback from the outcomes. So we're just missing this entire, essentially it, it's the mechanism of moral maturity. We're missing that muscle right now in how we're developing technology. That's, I think we still are in a, in a, a great way. So you're, you're trying to fix that, right? With, uh, with, uh, Slowly but surely. <laughs> Chipping yeah, away so, at it, yeah. So, so am I. We are, we're both in the same boat, and I, I think that a global discussion is my answer to it, in a way, to start that and to talk about how technology serves us in different areas of the world, to bring that closer to home, in a way, to bring the world closer to home in terms of how technology works. It's definitely a learning process. All of it must be. And I think that's a, an ethic yeah. in itself, the ethic to to learn and to, to discover. And hopefully we are able to build some guardrails though. If we are developing very fast, yeah. it seems to me the speed difference is this, this difference in speed in terms of what we're developing our thinking. We're, we're always running behind bad outcomes, it feels like. And it feels like that is, mm -hmm. so maybe even going so fast is, is not a virtue. I don't know how to, how, what do you think about that? Do you think in terms of innovative is the speed of innovation in terms of a virtue is that something we can choose or is that something that happens to us at the moment it feels a bit like it's happening to us um i think a lot of our structure has been built around uh, well build fast and break things that became its own virtue but i think we're at a t point in time where we we actually need to question that and look <laughs> at it and go is that We've a virtue? broken no <laughs> that's not it's causing Ouch. yeah we, we broke a lot <laughs> yeah. of things Let's, let, how about let's, let's, let's change this to fix things and we don't have to move at this at a snail's pace, but we should at least fix all the things we keep breaking. Just, you know, it, it, it's looking at different values. If anything to an extreme is always going to be a vice. We've taken speed to an extreme to the point where it might actually be working against us. It's okay to develop innovatively slightly slower. Um, if that means we are developing innovatively not in terms of the technology, but in terms of our of our ethics and, and the values of our technology are developing at the same space, at, at the same pace of our technology. Like it, there's, there's, something's out of balance here. And I think as a society, we're still trying to pinpoint where that, where that imbalance is. Um, but that's kind of what we're struggling with in terms of that speed. We've taken the speed a little too far. How do we t how do we bring it back a little bit, and what what needs to be placed in balance with that that that? Speed? I have a feeling it has something to do with the framing. We, we often talk about technology as if we were in a race with, say, China, for example. So if we're if we're talking it in in those terms, yeah. right? If we see it as a race, then we are naturally that yeah exactly exactly. Then then speed is is an enormous virtue because we're afraid of falling behind. Yeah. And I guess that is tied into this as well. And I don't know, to what yeah. degree do you see that as a virtue? Do we have to be ahead of China? What does that mean to be ahead of China? And do you, do you think that that is an ethic to be ahead of China? <laughs> no, that's not, that's, it's definitely not, not, not a virtue to be ahead of China. That'd be a very interesting virtue. Um, but it, it, it is a, a frame of mind. And I think, um, I think 
with it, the question, like you were just saying, is what does it mean to be ahead of China? Is yeah. this a, a terms of quantity? Is it a terms of quality? Is well, it, you know, do we need to have as invasive and pervasive technology as China? Is that actually the direction well, that we want, or do we want a different, a different? Type surely, of military will play a role in this, so because we, because yes. a lot of technology is tied to military innovation, if you will, and how we can bomb each other better. And we have to be sure that we do it better than the Chinese, because who knows, maybe they'll attack Taiwan. So do you have any thoughts on that? Is that not tied to the speed of, of innovation, actually, in some weird and maybe perverse way? Yeah, but then I, I would like to pose the question here is, do we need better weapons or do we need better security? Can we actually have innovation in terms of how in our security rather than in our weapons? Um, when we are trying to combat against the weapons in China, it's looking instead of like, okay, I'm bringing, I'm, I'm bringing, there's a song that goes, I'm bringing a lemon to a knife fight. It's like, do I need to bring a bigger knife or do I need to bring a lemon and confuse the person and do something completely different? Like it's, it's innovation does not just mean doing what the other person is doing better than that other person. It could be doing something completely different and in the opposite direction. Um, but having somewhere outcomes or, or, you know, innovation doesn't have to be, I'm going to build a bigger gun than you. My innovation could be, I'm going to build better security. Brings me to another question that I've been grappling with. Is it not also true that innovation isn't just a monolith? So we, we, it seems to me that we are innovating not enough, for example, on, on really important questions having to do with climate change, having to do with adjustments and working conditions, having to do with, with human with really important problems for humans that we're facing. But we're, we're actually innovating a lot in sort of gimmicky kind of things. And we're spending a lot of energy in those gimmicky kind of, what we call it also innovation. So it seems to me we're using the same term for radically different things. Yeah, I, I think a great point here is with um, the chat GPT, I've been in discussion with, I, I've, had, I've been talking with friends of, I mean, what does this actually have in terms of um, application of is this innovative um, or is it just a really cool chatbot? You know, we're using it for media. Is that innovation or is that just a new type of media? And so it's these questions of like all the innovation that we have, if it's just going into better advertising and more content creation, is that actually innovation or are we just doing more of the same thing at a bigger scale? Um, no, I think I think we're at a point in time where we need to actually question what what is our definition of innovation as a society? Is it you know better targeted ads or is it something completely? Yeah, different this is precisely that? a question that I want to tackle on this show. It's definitely, and what what it means in different contexts as well. What does that actually mean? Innovation? What should it mean? What can it mean? What has it meant? And so on. It's not a matter of how do we define it, but what does it do for us? I think, and, and it's more. It's the way I think of it. I think it is innovative if it does a lot of things that are really useful for us. And I don't necessarily include bombing other people better in, in that in that category. <laughs> so I, I just don't know that even yeah. if that's measured in the GDP and we could say there's this concept of solo residual, which is an innovation index in macroeconomics. Mm-hmm. And if we have a lot of that, it measures roughly something like the speed of ideas, how it improves in, in mm-hmm. a way that it contributes to the GDP. But this thing will not really tell us what this innovation was used to do. It, it, it will tell us how much money it's yeah. brought in in some way. And I guess that, that sort of means 
in some way will tell us something about the economy and how it is doing for people and jobs and so on. But it won't tell us really who at the no. end of the day will consume this innovation and do some, what, what they will be enabled to do with this innovation. And in a way, we, w we would want some measurement of that, right? Of that innovation, like the speed of innovation in a way that it expresses human empowerment. And we don't have anything like that. What, what, what do you do? What, what are your metrics that you advise your clients to, to look at? It really is client dependent because what we have to do is take a combination of here is what's required by law. Um, here are factors of, of usually we bring in factors of ESG. Um, but then also let's discuss with you as a company what your goals are and how do we deduce from there what kind of metrics you should be you should be embedding into your culture. Um, it's really client dependent, but we have the, that baseline of what is legally required. Um, what in terms of ESG are you lacking in? Um, and then as a company, uh, in terms of your, your vision and, and the values of the company, what can we do, deduce from there is in terms of metrics that you should be... Um, so, so do you agree with this? Because I, I think that in the end of the day, ethics is sort of, it's all about what metrics you, in, in large part, is about what metrics you optimize, right? Because, for example, yeah. the optimization yeah. of attention leads to yeah. crazy foreseeable side effects. You know that if a racist comes into a bar and says something outrageous, racist, we will all pay attention to this person because we are wired yeah. to pay attention to them. So if, if the algorithm is given as its objective to maximize engagement, it will do weird things like recommend racist materials. And, and, and this is, you could say that the ethics are embedded, embedded in the metrics that you optimize. Is that not true? And how does that relate to virtue? Yeah. Um, so when you're optimizing for different, this is where in terms of virtue ethics, I don't really like the term optimization um, because it has this implication or this knock-on effect of taking, it, taking something out of balance and taking it to the extreme. Um, which is where we start to have a problem is if you are optimizing for only one metric, you will have problems. You do need a balance of different metrics that you are quote unquote optimizing for, or you are balancing between. Um, and a lot of it is fine tuning. A lot of it, you need to actually critically think and go, okay, how, how is this optimization or how is this focus on this metric? What kind of outcomes are coming out of that? And do we need to adjust from that? You know, um, with social media, we were trying to optimize for a long time for attention on the screen. We saw actual impact, how that increased suicide rates, how that decreased our sense of, of worth. And we looked, we should have looked at that and gone, huh, nope, that's out of balance. We need to fix that. Something that is not the right metric to optimize for. Um, what can we balance But the machine won't allow you instead. to do that. So, right? Once you're in that point, so this is another thing. There is something bigger about this, something hmm. you could say societal yeah. about it. So if you're in the shoes of Mark Zuckerberg and you realize that attention maximization causes higher suicides and all of these other things, and you have, on the other hand, you have these investors who say you have to keep increasing the number of users and you have to keep doing this as well. and advertisements have to do really well because we're, we want our return on our investment. So you're in this kind of very stressful situation because if you pull the plug on this optimization, yeah. Oh, yeah. your entire business model will fall in on itself. So you have to, in fact, change your business model. This is something I've been arguing for 
is that you have to actually design your business model around your, you could say, virtues, ethics, you know, or your ethical principles, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. I, I say, honestly, the more work I... That, the more work I do with smaller companies and startups as an ethicist, the less I'm actually working on the technology and the more I'm working on the business model. Um, nine times out of 10, it's either, the problem's either rooted in the business model or in the culture of the company, not actually right. in the technology, uh, which is Yeah, so if you basically, well, in other words, if you have an algorithm that very effectively max or, or, or optimizes a very bad metric, the more effective this algorithm, yeah. the, the algorithm's doing great. <laughs> in terms of ethics, the better the, the better they are. Yeah. So, yeah, you have to actually align your business model with your with your ethical principles, and then derive the metrics from there. Yeah. And then, when you maximize these metrics, they should lead to good outcomes. I suppose that's that's also what I come to. Yeah, and you got to leave a little room in there of. Hey, okay, maybe that that wasn't right, or we need to adjust a little bit from there. You're not going to get it right from the first start. That's okay. <laughs> you just need to have the backbone to say we need to change and we need to adjust. So start from. So a also, foundation. that depends on the circumstances too. Because if, yeah, you're, if yeah. you're if you're doing something medical, let's say some medical AI, yeah, we killed a few people. Oops, we lost a few. Yeah, <laughs> yeah can't really yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. you need to have good foundations. The caution, yeah. I think, changes. Depending on on the magnitude, so that I guess I find yeah. myself inevitably be a, be a utilitarian in this area where you have to say that there are trade offs in every case, and the stronger that yeah. you end up being, the more sensitive, the more the more is at stake in terms of cost, I suppose ultimately, and in terms yeah. of benefits also. But so it is a utilitarian calculation at yeah. the end of the day, even though I'm always very much at odds with this approach, but it's sometimes it's irreducible to it, actually. Like, I mean, it is, I mean, it is, yeah. you can't escape it. You can, you realize that it is about trade-offs and about costs and, and benefits at some point. And do you find that as well? As a, and, yeah. and, and, and so virtual ethics can be well aligned with utilitarianism then. There's, do, you, do you see a conflict? No, I don't. I don't see a conflict. Um, what I often tell people is that it's best to actually apply a few different ethical frameworks or schools of thought to one scenario because then it gives you a better rounded position. I myself, I subscribe to virtue ethics. I am a huge supporter of virtue ethics, but I still work with people in terms of, well, from utilitarian perspective or deontological perspective. I don't usually use those direct uh, jargon words, but from this perspective, this is how this this action or this decision will be perceived. Um, because again, I, you know, there, there's shortcomings in, in all of these schools of thoughts. I just so happen to think that virtue ethics is, is the strongest, but it does, I'm not discrediting utilitarian or, or deontological. I think there's a lot to learn from those those schools of thought as well um, and in applying them and, and the perspectives. That so what do you find the strongest about virtue ethics in particular? I have to follow up on this when you said that, because clearly one would want to know what do you see as the, the biggest strength of, of, of virtue ethics and what it brings to the table that other systems don't? What I see as a strength in virtue ethics is actually <laughs> coming into innovation and the opportunity around um, how we look at our, our values. Because with virtue ethics, virtue ethics doesn't focus on let me avoid doing wrong. 
I don't want to do bad. Let me avoid doing bad. It actually looks at how do I, how do I embody this value? How do I embody this virtue um, to the utmost? So how do I be the, how, how can I have the right amount of courage in the, in the right situation? It's, it's focused on more of this proactive forward facing um, what opportunity can be found there. Virtue ethics to me has two sides, embodies both sides of the coin of ethics. It's let me avoid doing wrong, but also let me do good. There, it's ethics is, is the pursuit of the good life. How do I have a life of fulfillment and purpose? A life of fulfillment and purpose is not a life where I didn't get in trouble. It's a life where I actually did good and am doing good and I'm following my, my, my purpose. So for me, that's what virtue ethics has that the other um, schools of thought don't necessarily have. The other schools of thought are looking at uh, avoiding bad or not, not uh, follow, or following the rules or um, maximizing good at the cost of what can also be blown out of proportion and, and have some very negative knock-on effects. Virtue ethics has more flexibility, requires that critical thought of actually understanding that, that level of self-awareness of, of understanding, um, which is for me why, why I think it's personally, why, why, why I think it's one, one of the strongest schools of thought. Does it have a particular set of pillars, like, uh, you know, principles, if you will, axiom? <laughs> um. <laughs> Well, it depends on what, what base of virtues you're coming from. Um, I guess if we're talking about Thomas Aquinas here, he's a, he's a fun one to base on. He's got his seven deadly sins and, and the virtues that come out of that. And um, you could base it on, on those as pillars. Um, or you can base it on, I mean, if we're looking at technology of the modern day, you can base it on the pillars that the high-level expert group from the European Union has laid out for, for AI. Um, you can supply the different virtues, you can implement the different virtues through this, through this school of thought, um, which again, just so it's a, why you can also I like to, it. To a particular set of virtues, it's, it's, it's a, it's a plug-and-go system similar to, you could say, um, well, yeah, I mean, and, <laughs> I, I, in a way, it is a, a little bit like that. So when you, when you have this, what is it called? Um, uh, value-sensitive design. I, th I think that's is that related yeah. to virtue ethics. It's. I believe actually it is primarily mm -hmm. based on virtue ethics. If I if I remember correctly, um, because it is. It's designing for values. You select your values and you design for them. Um, so then I know a little bit yeah. about it. So that uh, yeah, I, I also find that an interesting approach that you have this base that you that that you how to say processes and systems in place that you can plug in values of the people who are affected. I always think that the, uh, that the, the values of those who are affected should be the ones guiding the development of technology rather than the value of the, of the people who are building the technology who should be at the service of those who are affected. Yeah. But how do you feel is your, how do you, do you, how do you feel about that? And, and do you have a, a way to do that to connect to the people who are affected by uh, by the systems you you advise to build. Yeah, yeah. I think um, what I advise is let it be a conversation. It's it's a collaboration between the people designing the technology and the people that are affected by the technology. 
Um, it should be a conversation, a collaboration between the two. Um, you get that through user feedback, uh, through your actual understanding of perspectives of people in the culture, in the, in the experience that you are, are affecting. Um, but, but it's important to be able to take in their considerations into how the technology is being built. But then there are certain restrictions to the technology where the people developing it need to say, okay, well, that's outside of the scope or that doesn't quite work there. Or that's not how it's, how we, we can make it work. It's neither, it's neither here or there. It's not this absolutely every single need of the, the user must be met or it's only up to the developer. That needs to be a, a conversation. That needs to be a collaboration. Well, I think that covers so pretty much what, what I had thought about in terms of what we could speak about. And so I, I guess it's a good time to end it here, but I want to first give you an opportunity to tell the listeners and, and the viewers um, about whatever you want to tell them, what you want to have them take away <laughs> with them at the end of the day. Very open-ended. Yeah. Um, no, I, I would just say that right now it's very tempting to get overwhelmed quickly by ethics or responsible AI, whatever you want to call it. Uh, there's a lot of doom and gloom around it, but I think it's actually a very hopeful and inspiring field. It's, it's a place of curiosity. It's a place for us as humans to go. Mm -hmm. Is this what we want? You know, we, we've reached a point in time um, in humanity itself where we have the opportunity to sit and go, is this actually what we want? Or do we want to take control and change it? Um, and that requires a whole lot of backbone and a lot of bravery. But we have it. Uh, we have the ability to do this. It's up to us now if we are going to. So um, I believe we are. And I'm one of the fighters that's, that's trying to help and build in that direction. Um, but yeah, I think this is a great time of opportunity. It's not something to be feared. It's something to run headfirst into. Fantastic. Well, lastly, I want to just uh, ask you um, if people want to get in touch with you, if they want to stay in touch with you, if they want to find out more about you, where can they do that? And I obviously will have that also in the bottom of the, where the comment section is. Yeah. Um, well, I am on LinkedIn and Twitter. My name on both, Olivia Gamblin, on both LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, you can also check out my website, which is just www.oliviagamblin.com. Um, I usually keep that pretty up to date. And you can also, uh, I think there's a, yeah, there is a contact. I had to remember, I built that website. Um, there's a contact form there as well if you want to reach out. Uh, I do get back to everyone. Sometimes it takes me a little while, but um, feel free to reach out. I always, I always love discussing uh, and chatting with people about the space. This show is published in video format on YouTube and in audio format on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and many others every Wednesday at 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 2 a.m. in Los Angeles, and 10 a.m. in London. Please leave your comments in the comment section. If you like something, please let us know. And if you don't like something, please also let us know. Give us a thumbs up for things you like as well. This helps the algorithm. And also, please subscribe so that you don't miss a show and that you keep in contact with us. Join the conversation. Next week, I will be meeting with Yasmin Alduri and we will be conversing about the Web3 movement. Web3, and some people even call it Web3.0, um, they're sometimes seen as a synonym and sometimes people say, no, they're not the same. Um, 
basically what the goal for both of these ideas is, is that we have a kind of web that is decentralized from these big powers. Oh, <laughs>